Well, it's a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, I trust that each of you, like myself, have been edified and built up already. Uh, enjoyed the class with Marty and the Bible class this morning, at least the one we, that we were participating in in the auditorium was, was excellent. I mean, you've got men who really care about the things that they're trying to do and to teach. Uh, but then the, the service, I really appreciate especially the, the songs kind of relating back to some of what we talked about and I uh, didn't realize what a good song leader Xavier was too. So, but, but the comments, everything. I, and I think you should appreciate being part of a group where people care about worshiping and honoring God and being able to, to be with others as you try to also express to God your gratitude and thanks for all that he's done for you. Uh, I'm very grateful to be part of the service this morning, to have been here this weekend with Marty, and, and I mentioned on Saturday morning, what a pleasure to be able to come with Kay, my wife. We don't often get to, to go and to work in different places in, in this regard. But we were thinking about different connections. You know, wherever you go, you like to to, to recognize if there are some connections between Christians here and Christians in other places. Sometimes it's easy to find those uh, associations, sometimes not, not as much. There are some here with this church. I, a number of you have mentioned the fact that you remember Mason Broadwell, Marty's oldest son, working as an intern here. Uh, Mason, before we left, had, had a number of good things to say about this church here and was hoping that at least some of you might remember him and the work that, that he did here. I will tell you now some good number of years later, he is doing a fine work as, as a, a father, a husband, a Christian there, and also as a deacon, a teacher, just, just in so many different ways. And I know that the time he had here was helpful to him. But I also found out this morning, Kay and I were talking, uh, that Brent and Leah Dyer, who had done your internship here right before Gavin. So I said, Kay, and I don't get, often have time to do things together, but in August of uh, 2021, we were able to go to the Czech Republic and study with the Christians there. I had done that some 20 years before, and it was just such a pleasure to do that. And sure enough, this young, energetic couple, you know, we were the older folks there, but this young, energetic couple shows up and and we're sharing, uh, we, we each have dorm rooms where they were, and you, you have a common bathroom, so they had to kind of figure out the timetable and stuff, but it was a pleasure to meet them. And they talked a lot about the, the, the church here as well. It just had not occurred to me till this morning that I just knew it was a church in Arkansas then, but it was here. And so it's always nice to have these kinds of associations together. You're already looking at it and seeing what's called a theme verse. That's probably confusing to you. Why, why does it say a, a, a theme verse? I should say just a little bit before we get into this morning's lesson, how this lesson came to be and how it was connected to some things that we were doing at Embry Hills in Atlanta, which is where Kay and Marty and I uh, worship there. Every year at Embry Hills, we have a theme verse and we started off with school years. So somewhere around September, we will announce from, from this September to the end of the next August, this will be the, the theme verse for the church this year. And we try to use that verse 
in some different ways. But one of the ways that we do is that we have a lesson at least once every month on some aspect of that theme that we've chosen for that year. This is the theme verse from uh, 2021 leading into 2022. So we finished up this theme back in August of this year, and we've got another theme that, that now um, is, is being useful for us in terms of the whole church there. Now, one reason why we chose this theme, let me read it to you for a minute. This was a passage out of John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. Jesus was saying to his apostles that night, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We wanted to set that year the theme as being love for one another because we were especially mindful uh, as you got toward the end of 2021 or in the middle part of, of that year of all of the association with one another that had been broken in some way or damaged or, or was uh, more of an obstacle because of COVID. And so we wanted to remind ourselves of the relationship that we all had with one another. And so a lot of those uh, theme lessons throughout that year had some aspect of how we were working with one another, all under the general idea of we need to love one another. We also tried to make it, though, a little bit more practical. So the one I remember, for example, was the, the, that we were to teach one another in song and, and hymns, and you're thinking about those passages in Ephesians and, and Colossians. So when we, we thought about that aspect of loving one another, working with one another, well, we tried to have a special song service and to really go through that. So that was a, a little bit of a practical application, if you will. I was given the lesson of serving one another. And so if you um, re remember the title of this morning's lesson, if you saw it somewhere, it's actually not loving one another, but it is serving one another. And I was given a passage that I'll show you a little bit later on in the lesson, but I was trying to think of how do I make this lesson more practical as we think about how we are to serve one another. At the time of the lesson, when I was preparing it, we were going through another process of, of potentially selecting additional elders. And we ended up actually appointing three men uh, as elders at that time, there are now 10 elders there uh, at, at Embry Hills. And I, I thought that it would be good as we think about serving one another. How do you relate the idea of loving one another, serving one another in the context of a church thinking about appointing more men to serve as elders and even looking more carefully maybe about the role of those men leading? How should they lead? How should the congregation follow? Were there things we could think about in regard to that? And so that's kind of the genesis of the lesson I want to share with you this morning. But we began this way. I thought it was important to think for a moment about how unusual the New Testament model for spiritual leadership is when you think about it from a worldly perspective. It, it it, there's a lot of things about it that just don't seem to make a whole lot of sense, really, when you ponder for a, for a, a little bit, uh, as you think about the way that God has designed the leadership to be. 
And so I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that I, I can think of, you may be able to think of some more, I can think of at least four oddities, four unusual aspects of the leadership as God has designed it. And I, I want to stress this at the beginning. I'm about to throw some, uh, uh, well, how do you say that? I'm, I'm about to say some things that may sound a little derogatory about this leadership. I just want you to know how strange it may seem to some people. But this is God's plan. And so we may point out some of the things that are a little bit odd about it, but, I, but from the beginning, I want you to understand this really is the way God intends for it to be. And we'll learn a little bit about it, even as we think about the oddities of it. The first thing I want you to, to think about is the fact that that elders, those spiritual leaders, the shepherds, as we've talked about throughout this uh, weekend, uh, they're not always employed by the church itself. And in fact, um, and I think this is the case here, none of the men here that are serving as your spiritual leaders, none of them are paid at all to do this work. And that's, that's very different even in a religious context, isn't it? You know, virtually every denomination and all has uh, it organized in some way that the spiritual leader, the ones who are actually making decisions on behalf of the church itself are ones who are either employed by that group directly, but oftentimes not even by the group for which they are working. It's by the church synod or some other organization over here that's been set up to employ them and to assign them out to those individual churches. But at the end of the day, the men who are the leaders, the ones making those decisions about that group and all, are fully employed. It's their their complete uh, job, as you might put it. You have these clergy laity distinctions. You can think about the way the Catholic Church is. You can just go down one after another, and it's very different than the fact that you've got four men here, none of whom are employed by this, this group. Now, if you think, though, in the New Testament, it is permissible, it would be uh, uh, acceptable to God for a man to be, as it's put in 1 Timothy chapter 5, to be worthy of double honor. Uh, there could be someone who is serving as a shepherd here who is supported by you. And, and that has taken place uh, in many churches. In fact, at Embry Hills, for a long period of time, one of our evangelists was also an elder, and he was fully supported by us. And that worked very well, uh, to be honest with you. And so there are times in which that works. But, but most of the time, it's not necessarily their full support if they are an elder exclusively and not also an evangelist. And not only that, but I think as you think about those passages, it's pretty clear that is the exception, right? In your experience, that's, that's not the normal thing for a man to be paid even as he is working as an elder. Well, from a worldly perspective, I was going to tell you, I, I see a lot of weaknesses in that. I could take some exceptions to that idea. He imagines somebody who's supposed to be carrying out an incredibly important work, and we're not even going to pay them to do that. Uh, what other types of, of big goals would we expect someone to be a leader in and just do it merely on a voluntary basis? How will we possibly find men who are willing to give of themselves, to, 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 to 
fulfill this task, to do the best that they possibly can and do all of it on a voluntary basis. That seems to me to be somewhat of a, of a strange, weak idea as far as leadership goes. But then there's the second thing. There's the fact that there are no women elders. All of those spiritual leaders in God's church uh, as serving as shepherds and elders, they're, they're men. And there is a scriptural reason for that. You understand that. The two places in which the qualifications are given very clearly about who it is who would be able to serve in the capacity as an elder shepherd, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, both of them talk about those individuals being husbands. And it, it describes them as being fathers. And that just makes it clear from the very beginning that the, they are men. They're males. They're not women. And from a worldly perspective, that, that seems very strange. It, does, does it not? You can see the problem in this for a lot of people. It's just completely at odds with, with the culture that we live in. And I think it's, it's difficult to even think about an organization these days that the leadership would be exclusively male. And if it is, that, that it wouldn't be critiqued for that in some way, chastised for, for that. And so it's not only the fact that it just seems a little bit out of touch, let's say, with the culture that we might live in, but there's also perhaps the idea that it seems impractical. It's not really going to work because after all, how can it be that men would successfully be able to lead women spiritually when those women don't even have representation as we sometimes hear? They're not part of the leadership. So they're, they're, not only do they not have an equal, they don't even have a voice at all. They're not being represented whatsoever. That's a criticism that somebody might raise. And so it seems a little bit odd. I'm going to come back to these points if, this, if you're getting a little uncomfortable as, as I throw these stones at this. But I want you to think from a worldly perspective, these things do look un, unusual. And then there's a third thing. There are multiple leaders uh, with the same exact title and, and responsibility. Now, once more, think about the scriptures. This is clear to me, at least. I, and I hope it is with you as well. Acts chapter 14, verse 23, when, when Paul and Barnabas were on that first missionary journey and all, they appointed elders in every church. That, that's kind of interesting, right? Not only is it plural, but it's like in every church. So wherever there ended up being elders, there were elders. There were there was more than one in every one of those places. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul calls the Ephesian elders to come see him. It's Again, it, it's plural. In Philippians, when he addresses, here the word is overseer or bishop. We talked about this a, a good deal yesterday. It's the exact same role. It's elders. So he calls the, the he mentions the bishops or the overseers. Again, it's plural everywhere throughout the New Testament. And so the idea is not that there would be one pastor or one person who is taking on the spiritual leadership of a group like this. It's always a, it's a plurality in that. And I can think once more about why that might be uh, seem to be a little bit weak. If, if you consider for a moment the way a lot of leaders work, leaders oftentimes are driven by their ego. 
and their pride. And leaders are oftentimes very much aware of their tenure and particularly compared to others. You know, I've been doing this for a lot longer than you. And, and if I've been in this, this company or whatever, this organization longer, I should be at a higher place. I don't understand why we are on exactly the same plane. If we were driven by that kind of pride and ego, you could see why this would be a difficult thing for, for, for spiritual leaders. I was thinking about here in particular, I, I, I think I've got this right. So, so Todd was appointed as an elder earlier this year. And uh, I, you have to wonder, did it bother Carrie? Carrie, I think you're the longest serving elder here at, at the moment. Did, did Carrie think, now wait a minute. I mean, you guys are going to call Todd by the same title as the one that I have here? And, and, and immediately, Todd's not a junior elder. It's not like we got different functions, different uh, tiers, if you will, within an eldership. Same role. Same responsibility. And, uh, and that was the way it was at Embry Hills when these three men, men came in. We have a man who's been serving for well over 20 years. Ken didn't say, well, I'm sorry. You guys are going to have to like earn your stripes here for a while, but I am the, I'm the longest serving. That doesn't happen. Instead, uh, and you can think there could be some downfalls to this, right? If there's always multiple men serving in it, all of whom have exactly the same level of authority and responsibility in regard to how do you go about making decisions? What about something like the period of COVID where, where there were a lot of decisions that had to be, be made? Wouldn't it have been a lot easier if we could have just appointed the COVID expert and put them out there and take care of that instead of trying to work through God's model of leadership where the, everybody had the same level of responsibility? And finally, here's one more thing. And that is, if you really consider it carefully, at the end of the day, these leaders, your spiritual leaders under God's plan, have no real power. Now, they have authority. You know, don't misunderstand me. They, they are the ones that, that should make decisions on behalf of this flock, as we've talked about it. And quite frankly, they, they should be making decisions and working with the individual sheep and trying to... to direct them in in different ways. But what I mean by power is, how do they go about enforcing their decisions? It's a lot different than it is in in the corporate world. You know, if somebody in in the company where I work doesn't follow the leadership, there's some real consequences to that. You might not be employed there anymore. Your pay may have been cut. You might not get to participate in some of the bonus, whatever it is. But there's some consequences to that. What are the consequences when somebody just simply refuses to follow the direction? If this whole church decides not to follow the direction of of these men as spiritual leaders, what do they have? What can they do to prevent that from happening? You can think of it on, on somewhat of a, of a silly basis. I, I was pondering it at Embry Hills. Obviously, we would like everybody to show up on time. I don't know if y'all care about that here, but, but we would. And so we're supposed to start Bible classes at nine o'clock. A lot of people happen to drift in a little bit later than that. It's regrettable. We'd like them to be there at nine o'clock. How can we enforce that? I think, wouldn't it be nice if we could have one of those uh, 
picture taking things as you come in the front into the, into the parking lot, it takes a picture of your, your license plate. We see here you showed up at 910, that's a $5 fine, okay. Or this month, oh, this is the third time it's happened this month, that's a $50 fine. There, there's nothing in place like that, and you understand that. Now, I, I do understand, you do as well. There is some power that the elders have that they, they, they could shame certain people. And there's an expectation of some discipline and some other things. But at the end of the day, if the church is unwilling to follow, there really aren't the kind of mechanisms of power and, and uh, enforcement that we have in other types of, of organizations. And that may seem odd to people as well. And yet, God's plan works. I'll come back to that thought in just a minute, but um, it occurs to me sometimes when, when we recognize, here's what God's plan is. We've tried to present the plan of elders working as shepherds among the whole flock, working with individuals. We've tried to give a picture of what that, that is. I'm not going to go back through and, and describe it, but it's God's plan. And we can look up and we can think about some things about that plan that seem strange and and odd in the world. And we could just stop the whole lesson right here. Doesn't matter, does it? In one sense, it doesn't matter whether it seems at odd with the world's culture or it seems strange or whatever else. If it's God's plan, that's the plan we need to follow it, period. And there's a part of me that just kind of, I I don't mind delivering that message. I kind of feel that, that way. But at the same time, there is great wisdom in God's plan. And and I believe that he's actually uh, revealed to us aspects of the the wisdom behind the kind of leadership that he's designed for us. In fact, I, I think the reason why this type of leadership works among God's people as he wants it to, when it works, is because it goes very much to the the heart of what we are all supposed to be as children of God. And when we are all what we are supposed to be, well, this is going to work. And so understanding why this leadership model that God has for us works will also help us, I think, understand who we're supposed to be. I'd suggest to you this, two things, when and why, this plan works. In the first place, it works when individual Christians are committed to being Christ-like. When when every single one of us as a part of the body, a a group of Christians who have formed a, a local church, when every single one of us is committed to acting in a Christ-like way, loving one another, as was our theme, as we were trying to go through it there. When that is the case, then this plan is going to work. Um, There are two passages that I want to consider, but but the second thing I want us to remember is that churches, and and I'll just point out, I, I kept thinking about this sentence a lot. Churches are focused on loving one another. Your first thought is, well, how does a church love another church? Okay, that's one way you could read this sentence. But a church, the way that the word is actually used in the New Testament, means a group of people. It's just a group of God's people who are, are bound together, working together 
the way that he wants them to. Like, like the, the church at Ephesus was to work together and so forth. And so when I'm saying churches are focused on loving, that, the group of people here, you're all focused on loving one another and working together. When these two things are there, then this model's going to work. I want you to look at two passages. This was the passage that was assigned to me in trying to think through the idea of serving one another as one aspect of that bigger theme of loving one another. It's out of the book of Galatians. Galatians is an interesting book because uh, we recently finished a study there. And what I was impressed by the most is I think that Galatians is a book written in a time of crisis. Here is a key moment of time when for, the, for that, the churches there in Galatia, would they understand the fact that they were all Jews and Gentiles to be together, working as one? And how were they to go about doing that? Or were they at a point where, you know, they were just going to spin off, here's, here's the Gentile group, here's the, the Jewish group, and one group's doing one thing with the law, the other one's doing something totally different. Or were they all going to actually do what God wanted them to do? God had a plan from the beginning, and it included everybody. But part of what it included was the idea of freedom. You were going to be free from certain things. And in particular, free from the consequences of sin. And so Paul actually mentions it in the first verse of Galatians 5. And then he comes back to this aspect of freedom in verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. What Paul is saying is, is that in this uh, freedom that you have, if, if having convinced them that they were not accountable to the old law anymore, that's part of the aspect of what he wanted to get across to them. There are many other things as well. But if that's the case, how are you going to use your freedom, this, this grace, this forgiveness that you have? Well, some might end up, he was concerned, actually pursuing their own interests, not the interest of other people. And if that were the case, they might bite, devour one another, working to get ahead of each other, not working together in, in all of this. And one of the things, by the way, just that's, that's interesting to me about that section of Galatians 5, you remember this is where you have the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. Go back and read the works of the flesh that he lists and, and read the, the, the fruit, the, the, the components of that fruit of the Spirit. How many of them have something to do about how we get along with one another? There are all kinds of terrible things that are part of the, uh, the works of the flesh, but he's particularly interested in Galatians about how they got along with one another. And he's stressing that here. And so a Christian is to love his neighbor as himself. And if we do that, then we'll come back and look at those aspects, those odd things about the leadership. But God's plan will work. But there's a second passage that I want you to understand. We've alluded to this, I think, a couple of times. Somebody brought it up in an answer to a question or making a comment yesterday, brought up, 
John chapter 13, where Jesus was washing the feet of his disciples or his apostles the night before he died. In Mark 10, what you have is a discussion on the way down to Jerusalem just a few days before that scene when he has to wash their feet to try to get something across to them. He'd already talked to them earlier about what they needed to understand when he was washing their feet. The picture in John and Mark 10, rather, is of Jesus. He is striding out ahead of the other uh, that are going with him, the apostles there. And the apostles, by the way, are said to have been amazed and afraid by his conduct. Something about the manner in which he's walking. And finally, he just stops and tells, look, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. But during that journey, they were also arguing about who was the greatest. And James and John had lobbied. And as as somebody pointed out in in a lesson once at Embry Hill, they also got their mommy to lobby on their behalf and to go to Jesus and to try to convince him that, hey, when you come into your kingdom, let us be one on your right hand and one on your left hand. We, let us be right there. Give us that, those, those positions of, of power and authority. You see, James and John had a different idea of spiritual leadership, different idea of leadership. And so Christ has to correct it. Here's what he says to them. Jesus called them to him and he said, and by the way, the the them is everybody because when the other guys heard about this, you know what they thought? Oh, wait a minute. Not James and John. How about me? They're all arguing. Every one of them thought, no, no, this is, I should be in that position of, of authority and of power. But Jesus calls them to him and he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see the contrast immediately between the idea that some people have of of the character of a leader what ought to be important to to a leader versus what Christ has described here. Do Do you notice what he says here is that those who are going to be leaders among Christians, among his people, are ones who are not going to be concerned about the kind of honor and authority and power that others in the world may care about. They don't care about that. A true leader among God's people is one who's ready to serve others. And those who are the greatest are those who are the greatest servants of all. And we have that in mind. First of all, that that picture from Galatians 5 of everybody striving to love one another and serve one another. And then of leaders who are concerned also about serving others, not about the authority, the honor, the glory that they receive in all of that. Then it becomes easier to understand why God's plan works. Let's look back then at these things that seem so odd to us, maybe at first, as we try to think about them from a worldly perspective. Why is it that God's plan works so well? Well, even though elders are not generally compensated by the church for the work that they do, 
I've found, in, not always, but in general, you can find men willing to do that work. You know, it talks about that in those qualifications. The one who desires to do that work desires a good thing. It's an important work. And there are men who, who are ready to serve others and to do that, that work. Ready to give an extraordinary amount of time to the church. Why would they do that? Because they're trying to emulate Christ. Did you catch that at the end of that, that, last, that last verse that we read? It said here about Christ, he gave his life as a ransom for many. And that was stressed again at the table this, this morning. And so as leaders, spiritual leaders, we're thinking about the fact that if Christ gave his whole life as a ransom for us, why would I not give of myself to serve my fellow Christians in the role of, of leadership? And so there are men who are willing to do that. In Acts chapter 20, we mentioned Paul calling the, uh, the Ephesians elders. Sorry, when I gave this sermon at, at uh, Embry Hills, I called them the Ethiopian elders. And I see here now why I did that. It's actually in my notes. It says, I got to scratch that out. It's not Ethiopian, it's the Ephesian elders. When he called them to him, we've mentioned several times this weekend in, in John, Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, that he explained to them that in his character among them, they should have seen that over those three years as an example. So he reminds them of the way he had conducted himself so the elders would understand the way that they should conduct themselves. You know, among the things he talks about there, he talks about in verse 31 that for three years, night and day with tears, he had done this work. He talks about working with his own hand. He made his own living. It's perfectly appropriate. I'm glad we're able to fully employ our evangelists because I think it's important for them not to be concerned about these things, to have the time and attention to be able to go out and do the work that they do. But Paul in, in Ephesus was not doing that. And he set an example for elders and elders need to remember that. Spiritual leaders will make extraordinary sacrifices for others because they know what's at stake. First Thessalonians 2 and verse 9, Paul also, uh, so once more, if he's a good example, he talks about laboring and toiling day and night. And so good leaders in God's plan. You can find those who, as, as Peter describes in 1 Peter 5, serve willingly. Even though it's on a voluntary basis, even though it may be without compensation, they will serve and they will throw their heart and soul into the work itself. But not only that, the fact that there are no women elders is not a burden, I'm sorry, it's not a hurdle that prevents us, an obstacle that prevents this model from working. Not at all. Godly women understand that, that at, the, at the heart of this work of being an elder, an evangelist, a deacon, other things that, that God has not designed for women to serve in, those are servant roles. And if they're servant roles, they're not roles of honorship. It's not like, like some kind of honor has been withheld from women. But more important than that is the fact that there is plenty of work of service, of serving for women to do. 
And if, if women have the same heart in mind, godly women have the same heart in mind that we've described here from Galatians 5, in, in even this leadership picture in Mark chapter 10, if they have that same heart, all they care about is serving. They're not concerned about doing it as an elder. They want to simply serve in whatever capacity God has given them to serve. And there's plenty of ways to do that. And so where there is the, that kind of attitude, there's not a concern that there aren't women that are part of it. And I would say this too, this idea that somehow they're not represented in that leadership because it's only men. Every man who serves as an elder is responsible for the full flock, for every single sheep. Half the church in most places are women. And I, I would just be ashamed as an elder if, if I were not as concerned for the souls of those women as I am for the men. I have no reason to be in that role if that's not in my heart to do that. And so if that's the case, then I would say those women are completely represented by men who want to serve their souls and help them. To give an account, as Hebrews 13 talks about, as much for them as for any man that they may be also trying to lead in that. What about, though, this idea that you've got the multiple leaders and, and everybody's got the same title and all of that? Why isn't that a problem? Well, I think by now you're beginning to understand why that wouldn't be a problem. You've got men who are taking on this task because they want to serve others. Ephesians 5 in verse 21 comes at, at the end of another one of those one another's talking about the teaching one another I mentioned earlier in songs and all of that. Well, then it says in verse 21 that we are submitting to one another. We all should have that attitude. Well, if you've appointed men as, as elders, who took on that attitude early on. They always understood. They should have this humble heart, this willingness to submit to others and all. Well, then you have men who can work together. We're sometimes asked, when Marty and I have gone to, to, to places to do these kinds of lessons, sometimes we go somewhere where there aren't elders. And those are many individuals there are concerned about, well, how do you make decisions? How, how can they group? This very question here. How can you manage to make a, a decision and not end up in lots of arguments and, and things like that? And what I always say is read the qualifications. At the heart of those qualifications are people who are humble men who have a good knowledge of God's word. And if you have men willing to submit to one another who all depend on, well, what did God say about this? And enough skill to actually look and find it and see what kind of direction and wisdom God gives, they will find a way to work together and, and to do this. But then there's another thing here, of course. This idea that, that the elders have, the leaders have no real power. You know, it, that doesn't matter. When a church is ready to follow. If you are really, truly willing to do your part, and there are strong words. You know, we, we looked at Hebrews 13 this week. There's a strong word about obeying those uh, leaders, those that are over you. 
There are strong words about submission and all. But the reality is, is that when you look to those men and recognize what they are trying to accomplish for Christ and for you, and you're willing as, as, a, as a group to follow them, then the idea that they have no real power, no way of punishing and so forth if somebody does, and that just becomes completely irrelevant. And so that's why it's so important to have that spirit of submission and all. I want to draw the lesson to a close with, with one other passage. I had some other, some practical advice to, to think about as, as we were in the middle of an elder selection process. And, and I'm going to just very quickly show you a couple of, of, of points here. But these are some points I think that by now, uh, in, in the lesson Marty did this morning and some other things, if you were able to participate, you've kind of heard this. You're not in the middle of a selection process. You're not thinking about maybe some elders in the, the, the next few coming months, you've recently appointed someone to serve in that capacity. But you should always be thinking about men, looking at men, recognizing those who are working sacrificially, who have some degree of success in their family. You should be aware of those men who don't have a degree of arrogance, that humility. Is, it's just so important, as, as it talks about throughout Titus, and men that are humble, concerned about other people. But I want to finish with this passage. Because I think this is the challenge to every single one of us. There, there are a lot of applications for this morning's lesson. Now, I've, I've made it narrow. <laughs> I've tried to talk about God's plan for his leaders and the way in which those of us who would be doing what we can to follow them. What's our attitude? What's the spirit of those leaders? Why does God's plan work? And all of that. The reason why it works is because Christians do things like what we're about to read in in Philippians chapter 2. But what I want to leave you with is the thought that there's so much more at stake here than leadership and following. This goes to the very heart of what God expects every single one of us to be. If I have any reason to think of myself as being a Christian, a, a, a follower of Christ, then this has to be true of me. Here's what Paul says to the Philippians. He said, so if if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and and of one mind. And I'll just stop for a moment. Isn't that the picture that we want to have as we think about shepherds leading the flock, shepherds leading sheep, all of us working together in all this one mind, this one accord, the harmony, the joy that's, that's a part of being somewhere where we are all on that kind of commonality. But then he goes on to say this, and here's the individual challenge. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Of course, he goes on to describe what Christ did for us in in taking on the form of a man and and being willing to die even for us on, on the cross. So I'll leave you with this challenge this morning. If you're a child of God, you need to ask yourself, do I put the interest of others above myself? 
Am I willing to listen to the leaders that, that are here and to try to, to follow as they, as they direct? But more than that, do I care about others more than I care about myself? And am I busy, active, engaged in the work that God wants me to be? But if you're not a child of God, you're missing out on something wonderful. And you're missing out on the, on the salvation of your soul. You're missing out on the forgiveness of your sins. But today's the day. Here's your opportunity. If you believe in this Christ who came to this earth and, and gave his life as a ransom for all, then please, this morning, declare that faith. Repent of your sins. Come forward, and I'm sure they will make arrangements for you to be baptized so your sins can be washed away this morning. We would invite you as we all stand and as we sing.